Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing pretty good. Uh, You've had a very busy weekend. Um, I have really just been playing Baldur's Gate and recovering (laughs) from a very busy couple of days at work. Uh, do you want to tell the folks at home what they might have missed yeah, with for your sure. busy weekend? So, I mean, October is always very busy for us. Um, and then... Oh, honey, we're in November. I know. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, like, I'm just saying that the the busy kind of, like, bled over into November for me. The day before this recording, uh, I participated in Extra Life, which is a charity that benefits uh, children's hospitals. It's sort of like an old school telethon uh you know where you would call in and send in money to pbs while the like celebrities entertained you on tv except that it's for gaming so like gamers will stream and you throw in donations and things like that and um i participated with the dungeon scrawlers which is an actual play uh twitch channel that plays dungeons and dragons um the gimmick of which is that at least the main group are all fantasy authors. Um, and for Extra Life, they usually run like a bunch of little games throughout the day. Uh, so I was invited to run a game uh, for them. Uh, so I did that uh, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Um, mountain time. Mountain time, yeah. Uh, and then I played in a game uh, later at 11 p.m. to 2 a.m., uh, so 12 hours apart uh, but it was a lot of fun and uh, those games will be going up on youtube uh, so if you missed them live you'll be able to catch them on youtube on the dungeon scrollers youtube channel i ran a game called battle at the berserk brewery and i played in a game called shadow of the demon lord if you're looking for those two videos which may or may not be up by the time this episode goes up Yeah, I got to overhear how everything went, and it sounded like everyone had a very fun time. And I think, (laughs) I'm trying to think of how to transition from the themes of your games into what we're covering in today's episode, Um, but I have no idea how to do that. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. I will say uh, we raised $530 during my game alone. Uh, Overall, the channel raised $2,000. 270 280 uh dollars uh overall across the day that's fantastic yeah it was great but uh yeah not a good transition point here other than to say um the the shadow of the demon lord game was sort of a horror fantasy game uh which meant i was like that's one of the reasons i was invited uh, along with some other uh, notable horror people like uh, author Rosemary Jones and uh, streamer Jennifer Kretschmer. Can I just say the name Rosemary Jones is really cool? It's a good name, it's yeah. It's a great name. I'm sure the person it's attached to is also fantastic, but that name, though. Meanwhile, here on Scream Scene, our European horror parade uh, continues with tonight's movie, A Mourir de Plaisir, 
in brackets, Le Sang et la Rose from 1960, directed by Roger Vadim, which uh, that title translates to And Die of Pleasure, in brackets, The Blood and the Rose. This movie has a lot of different titles. <laughs> but it is um, an erotic horror movie. First, actually, no, probably not our first time because we had Sex Maniac. Mm. Uh, I don't know if I would call Sex Maniac erotic, just sort of exploitative. Yeah, but it's like the first step towards erotic mm. horror, oh. I guess, if you wanted to put it that way. Okay. He's rolling his eyes, audience. Um, But this is this is an erotic horror movie, a lesbian vampire movie, loosely based on Carmilla by Le Fanu. And boy, it's been a while since we talked about Carmilla, Sarah. Yeah, I looked into my notes, and the last time we talked about Carmilla was in episode 31, when we covered Carl Dreyer's Vampire in 1932. Also um, a very loose adaptation. Very loose adaptation. Uh, it's currently ranked at number 59, but it, it really is not much of a Carmilla-specifically adaptation. It actually kind of takes a little bit more from Sheridan Le Fanu's other works, but in any case... That was the first touch point. Um, we have also done a an audiobook adaptation of Carmilla as previous Halloween bonus treats on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast, and patrons of any level can access that. They might have to go digging through the archives because I think that was the very first time we did something special. Sure. Um, but it's there. You can find it with the tag Halloween Treats. Yeah. I believe. Um, but it's excellent. It's like so, so cool. You did such a good job with that. Oh, thank you. Um, it was a lot. Yeah. Um, it's in a couple different parts because turns out Carmilla isn't a short story so much as it is a novella. Uh, but before I dig into Carmilla specifically, let me tell you more about its author. Uh, it is written by an author who goes by Sheridan Le Fanu, but his full name is Joseph Thomas Sheridan Le Fanu. He was born in 1814 in Ireland. Uh, his father was a Protestant clergyman, and his mother uh, was a writer. Interestingly, uh, Sheridan's great-uncle and grandmother are both also writers. Mm. So writing runs in the family, but his dad wasn't a huge fan of Sheridan kind of pursuing this. When he was 12, Sheridan and his family moved to Ebbington in County Limerick and had a tutor hired to, you know, teach him and his siblings. The tutor didn't do much, so Sheridan actually learned uh, most of his knowledge from his father's library. Um, by 15, he started writing fiction. He would share this work with his siblings and his mother, but not his father, because as I said, his <laughs> father was not super supportive about it. Um, when Sheridan was 31, his father passed away, and they would actually end up selling the library that he grew up reading in order to pay off the debts of his father. Lefanu studied law at Trinity College, um, though he continued his passion in writing and started to get some of his works published. His first ghost story, The Ghost and the Bone Setter, was published in 1838 in Dublin University Magazine. He was called to the bar in 1839 when he was 25 years old, but he decided 
not to go forward with it and to instead pursue journalism and fiction writing full-time. By 1840, at 26 years old, he owned several newspapers, including the Dublin Evening Mail. Four years later, in December, he married uh, his wife, Susanna Bennett, and everything seemed to be coming up le fanu. Uh, He and Susanna had four children, um, two girls, two boys. Everyone's really happy and healthy, though not super well off. And then the Irish famine struck three years later, and Le Fanu, while he was of a class that meant he wasn't directly starving, he joined support with other colleagues campaigning against England's indifference to Ireland's crisis, and this started a downward turn in his luck. Ultimately, him pledging his support and like having the newspapers behind him to do so would cost him a uh, Tory MP nomination in 1852, which would have been a great source of income. But as it stood, um, his family remained not super well off, so struggling financially. His wife, Susanna, began to struggle with mental illness uh, due to several close relatives, including her own father, passing away. Um, In 1858, she suffered a, it's everywhere it kind of calls it a hysterical attack, um, and she died the following day. Um, so read into that as you will. Sheridan Le Fanu would not begin writing fiction again afterwards until his mother's death in 1861. Um, he would have been 47 years old by that point, and his next work that would come out at that point would be the novella Uncle Silas in 1864. That same year, he became the editor and owner of Dublin University magazine, so kind of a full circle a little bit. And though he revised the magazine's focus towards an English audience, um, his last collection of short stories saw him return to Irish folklore before his death by heart attack at age 58 in 1873. Now, Le Fanu is well known by a few different works, um, but that last short story collection is kind of considered um, the culmination of his life's work. It is titled In a Glass Darkly. It was published in 1872, so a year before his death. And in this collection um, includes Carmilla. Um, So sort of a short story collection, more like a collection of novellas. Also in this collection would be um, the stories Green Tea, The Familiar, Mr. Justice Harbottle, The Room in the Dragon Volant, and Carmilla. For folks who've never heard of Carmilla before, um, welcome. It is a very good novella. I think it's really fantastic as an early example of vampire fiction. Uh, Le Fanu did not invent vampire in fiction, but this is kind of the first time that it's a female vampire. It is narrated by a young woman who is preyed upon by uh, Carmilla, And the story goes that uh, there's a carriage accident outside of the narrator, Laura's, uh, house. And um, the carriage's passenger, Carmilla, is injured. So she stays at the castle to recover, and Carmilla and Laura grow to become close friends. Carmilla sometimes makes uh, seemingly romantic advances. She's secretive. She sleeps much of the day. She's very much um, Byronic in that uh, classic way and how old are the girls supposed to be again uh like teens right like 14 ish yeah yeah um 
older than 12, but not yet married. Right. Meanwhile, girls in the nearby town are dying of an unknown disease. Uh, and Laura begins to suffer of the same disease. Um, she can't get out of bed. She begins to wither away and has a uh, small blue spot on her chest. She has nightmares of a cat-like beast pouncing on her at night and biting her on that blue spot. And as the story continues, um, they begin to realize, they as in Laura and her father, kind of realize that Carmilla bears an, an uncanny resemblance to Laura's ancestor, Mercala, who they have in a painting on the wall. Laura and her father go to visit uh, a family friend um, whose own daughter passed away from this illness. And as they discuss how things are going with that family friend, he shares that his daughter died after she befriended a young girl named Melarca. Eventually, Carmilla is seen by this family friend who confirms that Carmilla is, in fact, Melarca. They go to the tomb of uh, the ancestor Mercala and see a corpse that is very well preserved, is almost still breathing, like looks as if she has blood in her own veins. So they stake her, cut off her head, uh, and that is the end of Carmilla. Laura never fully recovers from the illness slash vampire attacks. And that's that's kind of the story. Uh, what's neat with the novella is that it is, you know, gothic fiction. And then the, I'll say like epilogue, basically, is kind of Le Fanu explaining the vampire lore and what was going on with Carmilla. Um, so that kind of shows how early into vampire fiction that this is, that Le Fanu felt he had to like sit down and explain to his readers just what was going on with Carmilla. So that's the novella that's shared in Le Fanu. Hopefully this movie and Die of Pleasure fits with it uh, as an adaptation. Um, we will see. It, I think we will at least see some gothic goodness. Well, yeah, it's still something of a loose adaptation. I think probably closer than Vampire, since uh, there's a character named Carmilla in this movie. Okay, that's um, yeah, one step closer. Yeah, Vampire was sort of like it took bits and bobs from all of the short stories in uh, in a glass darkly and kind of like like blended them together into a new story. So, like, really, the only Carmilla stuff was like the vampire is female and the victim is a young woman. And that was kind of, that's kind of about it. Yeah. Vampire took most of its inspiration from the room in the dragon Volant, but it definitely was, uh, in a glass darkly all in a blender <laughs> and then interpreted by Carl Jire. So this film, uh, tonight's movie, um, Emorir, De Plaisir, uh, a.k.a. Le Sang et la Rose, which I, I need to point out, like, both of those titles are are on the movie. It's it's like an ellipses, a mourir de plaisir, um, and die of pleasure. And then beneath that, smaller and in brackets, Le Sang et la Rose, which is uh, the blood and the rose. So... And dive pleasure, blood and roses. Makes total sense to me. Right. Um, <laughs> but this film is the brainchild of filmmaker Roger Vadim, who is kind of a big deal, depending on like 
what kind of movies you like, I suppose. Um, he was born Roger Vadim Plemianikov in Paris in 1928. His father was a white Russian officer who had emigrated, and his mother was a French actress. His father died when he was nine, and his mother opened a hostel in the Alps to help fleeing refugees from the Nazis. Though Vadim studied at the University of Paris, he never graduated. Uh, instead, at age 19, he became the assistant to film director Marc Allegre. Vadim moved up from director's assistant to assistant director, and then began collaborating with Allegre on his film's scripts. In 1952, Vadim married model-slash-actress Bridget Bardot. Oh, I know that name. Yes, she's quite famous as a sex symbol of the uh, 1960s. Um, at the time, he was 24 and she was 18. Vadim, Bardot, and Allegre made School for Love in 1953 and Plucking the Daisy in 1956, and the success of that latter film and also a movie called Naughty Girl, also in 1956, <laughs> uh, allowed Vadim to write and direct his first feature film, which was co-written by the film's producer Raoul Levy, and starred Bridget Bardot, and that film was called And God Created Woman. This film was a huge hit and launched Bardot into international stardom. Its release in the U.S. in 1957 challenged the production code and pushed the boundaries for the depiction of sexuality on screen. Vadim made The Night Heaven Fell with Bardot before the pair divorced due to Bardot's affair with her co-star from And God Created Woman. In 1959, Vadim helmed an adaptation of Dangerous Liaisons, uh, which included in its cast Danish model actress Annette Stroiberg, who was 23 uh, when Vadim was 31. The two fell in love and got married. They had one child, Natalie Vadim, who went on to become an accomplished second assistant director. Vadim's next film would be Blood and Roses, which would also feature Stroiberg. After this film, uh, the two of them divorced, and Vadim reunited with Bardot for the film Please Not Now, uh, <laughs> though not romantically, just professionally, and he would direct her a few more times through the 60s. Um, instead, at this time, he became involved with model actress Catherine Deneuve, um, another big sex symbol of the 1960s. He cast her in three of his projects between 1962 and 63, beginning when she was 19 and he was 34. They, my guy, my guy, the, all these women are very young for you. They had a son, uh, Christian Vadim, who became an actor. In 1964, he adapted the German erotic play Reagan into La Ronde, uh, or Circle of Love, as it was known in the United States, a controversial film in America for the nude scene featuring 27-year-old actress Jane Fonda, uh, which was the, oh. I think, first nude scene for an American actress. Yeah, but Jane Fonda likes to push boundaries like that. Fonda and Vadim fell in love, and they were married in 1965 when she was 28 and he was 37. Well, at least... You know, as he ages, the like the distance between his love interests stays it's, the it's same. It's consistent, but right? At least, you know, yeah. Um, they had a daughter, Vanessa, 
and they made more films uh, such as The Game is Over, Spirits of the Dead, and most famously Barbarella in mm-hmm. 1968, the uh, sci-fi sex comedy based on the French comic book series. Vadim, uh, his friends described him as just like a really happy guy who was like full of life and just like very kind of like charismatic and fun to be around basically sure um very like boisterous um very much like someone who i think loved being in love you could probably say and many of his films have like erotic themes throughout them vadim's children described fonda as kind of the love of his life um but they divorced in 1973 after she had a series of affairs jane vadim's career after this um entered kind of a slump period from which it never really recovered um he went to america in 1971 and directed a uh like erotic thriller i guess you could call it called all the pretty maids in a row which was written by gene roddenberry and starred uh rock hudson as like a high school i think he's like a gym coach who's having affairs with the like young girls at the school and killing them yikes or something along those lines okay but you know even though as i said his his career never really recovered from the slump he did continue working uh like all through the rest of his career he made films regularly uh including a remake of and god created woman in 1988 he had two more wives the last of which was marie christine barreau uh, an actress who married Vadim in 1990 when she was 46 and he was 62. Okay, that distance get is getting a lot larger now, <laughs> my guy. Yeah, but like... At I, least she's like... Like 46, 62, I don't know, it doesn't feel as... as icky? Sure. <laughs> um, she appeared in three of his films uh, and they remained together until his death in 2000 of cancer. Uh, all of his wives attended his funeral. Oh, that that's nice. That's nice. <laughs> you don't hear that often, Ben. Sure. That's why that's nice. Don't sure. give me a look. I'm not giving you a look. Okay. But yeah, like, even though the women were always younger than him, you know, by a certain margin, at least it wasn't like he was 27, she was 18. He was 35, she was 18. Yeah, he we're was not 46. a Leonardo DiCaprio exactly. situation. Exactly, yeah. So the producer of this film... Uh, Raymond Egger, he wanted Christopher Lee for the main male role in this picture, uh, which is a character named Leopoldo de Karnstein. Um, Karnstein is, I believe, the like family name of like Carmilla's line of aristocratic vampires, if I'm remembering correctly. But I don't think Leopoldo de Karnstein is a character in the novel. Um, but Christopher Lee was unavailable. Yeah, he was uh, busy making City of the Dead. Right. So the role went to American actor Mel Ferrer. Born in New Jersey in 1917, Ferrer was Spanish-Irish and raised in a very prominent Catholic family of, like, doctors and, and other, like, like professionals who did amazing things in their career. Um, what are you saying about acting? <laughs> Ferrer began acting in Summerstock as a teen, and at age 20, he won an award for a play he wrote with his first wife. Ferrer, like, was an actor, he was a writer, he was a producer, he was a director, he kind of did a little bit of everything, both on stage and in film. 
Into the 1940s, he began appearing on Broadway, and in 1944, he won a contract with Columbia Pictures as a dialogue coach. By then, he had divorced his first wife, divorced his second wife, and remarried his first wife. (laughs) Who does he think he is, Richard Burton? (laughs) Back on Broadway, he appeared in the original run of the play Strange Fruit. Uh, He also directed a run of Cyrano de Bergerac. In 1949, he made his screen acting debut in the controversial film Lost Boundaries, where he played a black man who earns his medical degree by passing for white. Okay. So it's a story about like a very light-skinned black man, right, who who passes himself for white so he can get into the medical establishment. And uh, apparently, like, it was very controversial at the time for casting a white actor in a black role. The reasoning, as I understand it, was so that, like, because he's got, like, a wife who is also black passing for white, like, also light-skinned, and I guess, like, there was concern about if they had, like, a black actor and a white actress or something. There was a lot of concerns about, like, would the production code allow certain yeah, things? Yeah, because, like, interracial relationships and miscegenation. Yeah, like, was, like, an issue for censorship and things yeah. like that. But, yeah, it's it's... It's a controversial movie. We'll call it that. Um, In 1950, Ferrer moved out to RKO as both an actor and a director. So he's he's doing both in film at this point. Uh, He then switched to MGM for a few years before going freelance when the studio system collapsed. In 1953, he met Audrey Hepburn at a party and the two got married the next year when he was 47 and she was 25. Audrey, you should know better. They actually stayed together uh, until 1968, uh, and they appeared together in the American version of War and Peace, uh, where she played Natasha and he plays Andre. Ferrer continued to act, write, produce, and direct on film and on television through his career. We're actually going to be seeing him again very soon, um, because a little later in 1960, Hammer has a Hands of Orlac remake coming up, and Ferrer plays Orlac. Was Christopher Lee also not available? (laughs) I don't know. We'll find out, I suppose. Uh, His last wife was Elizabeth Sukatine, to whom he was married from 1971 to his death in 2008. Ferrer's love interest in this picture is a character named Georgia, uh, not Laura, and she is played by Italian actress model Elsa Martinelli whose breakout role was in The Indian Fighter in 1955 at age 20, opposite Kirk Douglas. She acted very regularly in all kinds of things uh, until her retirement in 2005. Um, I know her best because she has an appearance in Orson Welles' film The Trial in 1962. Sure. uh, And she passed away in 2017. Annette Stroiberg, the director's wife, uh, plays Carmilla, in this film, though her performance in this movie was sort of um, savaged by critics who accused her of overacting um, and generally not being able to act. And um, rude. those reviews kind of led to this film not really doing well in France, which I couldn't find like a confirmation of this anywhere. But reading between the lines, it feels to me like that kind of is what led to their divorce the next year that like this project didn't work out well 
Um, after her divorce with Vadim, she had a series of high-profile relationships with directors and star actors, and then a series of marriages to rich capitalists throughout her life uh, before passing away in 2005 at age 69. Vadim's mentor, Marc Allegre, appears in the movie uh, playing the part of a judge, so that's kind of cool. The film was shot around Hadrian's villa, uh, which was the estate of Roman Emperor Hadrian, built in around um, AD 120, uh, whose size covers an area larger than the city of Pompeii uh, and whose architectural complexity would not be matched until the Baroque movement of the 17th century. The um, very small segment of our listeners who are like architecture or art history majors are just like, oh, Hadrian's <laughs> Villa. Yeah. Um, the cinematographer for this movie was Claude Renoir, uh, the son of actor Pierre Renoir, nephew of director Jean Renoir, grandson of painter Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Claude Renoir got his start in film as an assistant cameraman in the 1930s, including on his uncle's picture, Grand Illusion. By the 1940s, he was a cinematographer, and some of the credits of his as a cinematographer that you might recognize would be the 1956 version of Crime and Punishment, the 1957 version of The Crucible, Barbarella in 1968, and The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977. Okay. Film's editor... Uh, is Victoria Mercanton, who was Vadim's regular editor. Uh, she is actually credited with successfully lobbying the French government to legislate that the film industry switch from flammable nitrate film to safe acetate film after she survived two editing bay fires, one of which killed the director who had been sitting next to her. Holy shit. She would later say to Vadim, I want to be able to smoke my cigarettes while I'm working. <laughs> That's such a French attitude. <laughs> so this film was released as a morir de plaisir, brackets, Le sang et la rose, in France on September 14th, 1960. It was released as Il sangue et la rosa in Italy on January 18th, 1961, as Und verlust zu sterben, in West Germany on January 27th, 1961, and as Blood and Roses in the United States on September 2nd, 1961. So, so countries, it seems, got their choice of which of the two titles they wanted to go with. <laughs> yeah, that's why the, the original gave two options. Right. Uh, the American version eliminates the prologue and the epilogue, cut all of the scenes with the characters Martha and Marie, had a different ending where Georgia's fate is different, and uh, had narration throughout from Malarca. So a lot of changes in the American version. Uh, critics praised the location shooting at Hadrian's Villa, praised the cinematography, which is in Technicolor, um, but criticized the film's story, both on its own merits and as a Carmilla adaptation. Oh, oh no. Uh, one critical quote that I found even said that Dreyer's film was better, um, while acknowledging that, like, Dreyer's adaptation was looser. However, gay magazines, like One, noted the film's popularity with lesbians. Quote, 
We hear the latest fad for some gay girls after seeing the lesbian vampire movie Blood and Roses is to tattoo two little marks above the jugular. Anyone want a neck? <laughs> so to the best of my knowledge, uh, the only DVD release of this movie is the German DVD release, which has German and French language with English subtitles. So we're going to be watching the movie in the French language with English subtitles, but it'll have the German language credits on it because it's the German print. Um, As far as I know, the English version, Blood and Roses, uh, the American version, I should say, has only ever been released on like VHS. Um, I'm not aware of like any DVD releases in, in France or elsewhere. Like it's a little bit odd um, that there aren't like more releases of this film, but uh, if it didn't do well, makes sense. I mean, I suppose, but it feels like we're in an era where like everything is getting <laughs> like a cult, like, you know, restored Blu-ray release, no matter sure. how bad it was. Yeah. I guess like attack of the crab people got a release. Right. right so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think this is, uncut like i think the the i don't know this for sure but i think the edit of the film is the same as the original french version like all the european versions were very similar in their edit and then the american version was the one that was kind of like changed the most um but this is the only version i could find so this is what we're watching okay uh well folks hopefully you can also find a copy to watch along you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss a Mourier de plaisir, uh, aka and die of pleasure slash blood and roses <laughs> from 1960, directed by Roger Vadim. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching A Moyer de Plaisir, uh, aka And Die of Pleasure, also known as Blood and Roses, from 1960, directed by Roger Vadim. Um, ben, you already intimated that you did like a couple things about this movie. Overall, I did not like this movie. I think that overall, if you are going into this movie having been told that this is an erotic horror movie that is a you know lesbian vampire movie that is adapting Carmilla, you're going to be disappointed on all of those fronts. Yes. So yes, there's stuff I liked about this movie, um, but... I think that judged as a horror movie, it's not a good one. (laughs) And also that like, you know, judged on the merits of how it was marketed. Like, okay, there's blood and roses in this movie. Yes. There isn't a lot of dying of pleasure. No. um, (laughs) Where's the eroticism? Yeah. We saw far more tits in other movies that were 
not marketed as erotic. Have you seen the poster for this movie? Uh, it's like the two ladies kissing. Yeah. Basically. When they're all wet, like they're in a tattoo video. What? You know, the Russian pop girl duo from the early 2000s that was <laughs> controversial because they like made out in a video. Okay, that's not what I picked up from the poster at all. Okay. But, um, <laughs> and for clarification, they were wet because it was raining. Yes, correct. That is what Ben means. Yes. Um, it's good to be specific about these things, Ben. Sure. Um, why don't I give the synopsis? Mm-hmm. And then we can <laughs> dig into this movie. Um, all right, so there are a few characters, but the three that are kind of our main folks are Carmilla, her cousin Leopoldo, and his fiancée, Georgia. Now, Carmilla, she is very much seen as, like, Byronic. Um, She has these kinds of uh, fits of mood swings. This seems to be particularly exacerbated because she is in love with her cousin, Leopoldo. But, you know, he's engaged to Georgia. Um, on their estate, there is the kind of crypt and graveyard over there, and it's deemed the perfect spot for fireworks for the engagement party. Uh, unfortunately, during World War II, uh, Germans put some bombs around there, and uh, those detonate with those fireworks. However, this does uncover a forgotten secret hidden tomb of Malarca, uh, an ancestor of Carmilla. Now, let me give some backstory here. Carmilla and Leopoldo, because they both share the name, are of the Kornstein family. And there is a family curse um, that basically they've all been vampires at one point or another. But that kind of ended in like 1775, I think they say, because the villagers were like, fuck it, we're going to go rid the the cemetery of all the vampires. They opened up all the crypts, all the coffins, and staked and beheaded everything that they found. Um, all except Malarka Karnstein. Uh, her coffin was empty um, because... So she was like beautiful and she was going to get married and then she died before she was able to get married to her love and her lover was like, oh no, they're going to like kill all these people. She was like recently dead. Um, so he hid her tomb away. And and her lover was her cousin. Yes. Ludwig, Ludwig. Karnstein. So he also goes to try to find like some new brides because, you know, his love is dead, and all three times those brides die. Now, this is just told over, you know, dinner. Now, Carmilla, she uh, is upset about this engagement party. She's wearing a wedding dress. It's a costume party. Um, and uh, Georgia interprets Carmilla wearing a wedding dress as, oh, she's going as her ancestor Malarca. Well, Seen I... here in this portrait, wearing a wedding dress. Yeah, like, I think it's... I don't know if it's meant to be the same dress, but it certainly looks like it. After the explosions over at the crypt, Carmilla goes, you know, walking around and she's, she finds this uncovered tomb. And next thing we know, Malarca uh, overtakes slash kind of possesses Carmilla and uses her to walk among the living. 
Now, the movie is very vague about this, but this is kind of what I'm interpreting from what they show. The <laughs> handyman? I yeah, guess? like the groundskeeper. The groundskeeper, that's the better term. Uh, the groundskeeper, Giuseppe, does see Carmilla slash Malarca in the wedding dress wandering the grounds every so often. He interprets it as a ghost. And finally, uh, I think about an hour into this movie, um, a servant girl named Lisa gets killed by Carmilla. Um, technically, she dies from a fall off a cliff, but she does have a neck wound that suggests that her neck was bitten. Next, Carmilla begins to target Georgia. Uh, they get caught out in the rain. They hide in a greenhouse. Now, part of the vampire lore in this movie is that a vampire can't hold roses uh, or specifically any flower because it like will wilt in their hands. But also that if a vampire attacks and kills someone they love, that person becomes a vampire. So she targets Georgia. She like kisses her. Um, but then they're interrupted. George is very like, I'm not sure what is going on. I'm not sure how to feel about any of this. And she's kind of frightened about all of it. And that night, Carmilla comes to her to bite her neck. And Georgia experiences kind of a, a dream sequence. Um, now, Ben had set up in the context setting that this whole movie is in Technicolor. But when we enter this dream, it goes into black and white to kind of convey that it's a dreamscape. Nothing particularly noteworthy happens beyond um georgia wandering around and she comes to basically like a medical bay and she sees all these people operating on carmilla she's like oh no carmilla and then one of the doctors pulls down their mask and it's malarca who says actually carmilla's dead i killed her when i took possession of her um and georgia like screams and that's when she wakes up and everyone kind of comes to her rescue and she says, Malarca's going to die. Um, just keeps repeating that. We see that Camilla slash Malarca is wandering the grounds again, trying to make it back to her crypt before the sun comes up. Now, meanwhile, remember those like German bombs? Well, they didn't all go off with those fireworks. So the army is here to kind of fully detonate all of them and unfortunately it will destroy the crypt but it's you know safer for everyone and they set off those explosions just as Carmilla slash Malarca uh, wanders over to the crypt now she gets like blown away and lands sort of like on a stake slash tree um, I think it's meant to be like um like a stake, like a wooden stake from like a fence or something that yeah. gets like knocked over by the explosion and then she falls on it. Yeah. So that's how Leopoldo finds her. Back at the house, we see that uh, Georgia reacts to the death of Carmilla. Because Georgia was in a bad way, they did call in a doctor and Leopoldo did try to find Carmilla before wandering the grounds. And the doctor is like, yeah, I think something's up with Carmilla. I think there's some kind of dual personality thing going on here where she um, couldn't handle the fact that you were engaged. And so she's taken on the persona of Malarca to hurt people. And that's kind of his explanation, but it doesn't quite fit with the full movie because the movie is also trying to show that there's some supernatural things going on here, like with Georgia reacting. Now, I didn't start this at the top because it's so whatever, 
But the movie begins with a prologue of the doctor uh, getting onto a flight and um, some of his colleagues being like, hey, doctor, tell us a story. Yeah, you, you always know strange stories. And so he's like, OK, well, I'll change the names. And then we go into the story. Um, and then when we uh, see that Camilla has died, um, the doctor finishes his story on the airplane just as they're landing, saying that like, yeah, like, I think it was a dual personality situation. Um, however, who will really know? Because now there is one last female Karnstein uh, for that family curse. And the movie cuts to seeing Leopoldo and Georgia coming back from their honeymoon. Um, and Georgia holding a rose that slowly wilts. So the implication is that Georgia is a vampire because Carmilla loved her. Uh, and that is the end. <laughs> Is there anything in that that you would like to cover that I might have missed? No, you, you glossed over a lot of stuff, but kind of out of necessity because a lot of nothing happens in this movie. A lot of nothing. Um, so, you know, if there's something that you didn't say that I want to talk about, I'll just bring it up at the time. But I think you hit everything that's really important. Like there's a lot of other ancillary characters and relationships going on here. But like, yeah, not important. And I there are other moments where like... The movie is trying to show that there isn't something quite right with Carmilla's mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is when she's already killed Lisa, um, but she's been like wandering around in the wedding dress. And when she sees her reflection, she sees that she has this blood stain on her chest. Um, but there actually is no blood stain on her. So it's almost like a Lady Macbeth situation. Yeah. I, I did want to say that like, in my opinion the movie pretty pretty doggedly stays ambiguous about yeah. whether something actually supernatural has happened or whether it is all in Carmilla's head. There are like things that indicate the supernatural, um, like when she sees Malarca's tomb, we get like almost what seems like a POV shot of Malarca's, like from the point of view of Malarca's spirit rising up out of the tomb and then going into Carmilla. Um, and of course there's the moment where like Georgia thinks she, she feels Carmilla's death and, and a few other things like that, but all of the things that could be supernatural are things that like you could write off as being symbolic or coincidental. The whole story still works either if, way, either way, if it's just her being, um, bereaved to the point of insanity. Yeah. Cause to your point about the point of view shot of Malarca, coming out of the coffin and approaching Carmilla, when Carmilla is giving the exposition of who Malarca was, um, she starts to describe like what Malarca would see if she were here. And the camera goes into that point of view shot. Mm -hmm. um, but it's Carmilla narrating. Yeah, just narrating like a story, right? And we're getting like a visual representing what she's saying, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of like a here's her imagination run wild yeah so you could totally buy it either as there really is a vampire spirit that has possessed this woman or as this is a woman who's you know simultaneously obsessed with her cousin and obsessed with this old legend to the point where she really identifies with it right and that's actually something i really liked about this movie was that ambiguity um it reminded me of like the old val luton movies sure in that way like a very cat people kind of thing um even to the like thing where she's attacking people like lisa does have the vampire bite marks and so does georgia 
but like Lisa was killed by being thrown off of a cliff and it's not and she has like all these wounds that are bleeding it's not like she was um drained of blood right and if Carmilla thinks she's a vampire she's gonna act like one right and because we don't actually see George's attack we see it sort of like from George's point of view, but George is asleep. So we're just seeing like what her subconscious is doing with the fact that she's being attacked while it's happening. So we see this dream sequence. We therefore like, don't really know what happened during all of that. So I do really like that ambiguity. Um, do you want to, I can, we can start off positive and talk about what we liked about the movie and then tear it apart or we can go the other way around. Well, I will say that most of what I have to say is negative. Mm. The few things that are positive, uh, I thought there were some neat shots. I liked the music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, that's about it, fan. Well, I do agree with you on those points. I think the cinematography is gorgeous. I think it's really spectacular um, in a lot of different ways. There's great shots at night when the like fireworks are going off i think that the shots of carmilla wandering through the forest in her spooky dress are like you know perfect like lady in white wandering the the night kind of shots the shots that indicate sort of her fractured state of mind like the the blood stain stuff in the reflection like are all very clever um there's a lot of just really gorgeous cinematography all through this movie the dream sequence although it's a little like it's very kind of like lol random um, as a dream, se- as far as dream sequences go. Sure. But in terms of like the cleverness of the like cinematic effects that they're doing for it, like they're all very impressive and cool and clever. So I really liked the cinematography in this movie. I think this is a really gorgeous looking movie. And I loved the music, um, which is by composer Jean Podromides, I think is how you say his name. Anyway, it's it's wonderful. I really love the music. I think it was beautiful. I think it fits the movie perfectly. I think it would also fit like a more accurate Carmilla adaptation perfectly, like just in terms of like the mood that it suggests. I think it's really good. I also actually think that Aneta Stroiberg gives a really good performance here. Like I'm going to go against the original critics of this movie. I think she does a really good job portraying the bipolar tortured, potentially possessed or vampiric or potentially psychotic Carmilla early in the movie, like before the possession happens, like characters are already talking about Carmilla in terms that we would now kind of understand is like bipolar, right? Like they're having this costume party, as Sarah mentioned to celebrate the upcoming wedding. Carmilla is like sulking about it. And her doctor, who's the one telling the story says something along the lines of like, Well, you know, yesterday she was super enthusiastic. You just had the bad luck of having the party on a bad day. And like that rang very true for me for like describing bipolar disorder stuff. And I think Annette Stroiberg is actually really good as Carmilla. I also think Mel Ferrer does a really great job with Leopoldo, who I think like as written is kind of... um, deceptively complex as a character and it takes an actor like Mel Ferrer taking the character seriously to allow that character to achieve some real depth because I could see an actor playing this character and them coming across really like flat but there's a lot of interesting depth to Leopoldo here with like how does he feel about Carmilla we know that she loves him and then we get some, you know, hints and incidences throughout the movie that suggest that he loves her, um, but he also definitely loves Georgia. And as much as everyone remarks on Carmilla's mood swings, 
Leopoldo goes from kind of like jovial to cold um, and and has these moments like these moments where he seems like he needs to be in control. Yeah. Um, there's a lot going on with him as well. So I think Mel Ferrer does a really good job there and appears to be taking the role like seriously as an actor. I really liked a moment when Carmilla is asking him like, you, you seem like you've changed. Like what's, what's going on? And he mm-hmm. says, well, it's Georgia. Um, she's like saving me from myself. I think he says, mm-hmm. and it kind of like hints at the bipolarness that we see in Carmilla if that's a word, bipolarness, being almost a, a bit of a family trait, which makes sense. Mental illness can be hereditary and that Leopoldo isn't immune either. Right. Like he says to her, like, Carmilla, like the Karnsteins are not a happy family. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I also think that Elsa Martinelli acquits herself well uh, as Georgia. And I think as an actress adds some complexity to Georgia. The thing that's most notable about Georgia to me is like, she's portrayed as very like positive and happy and she's happy to get married to Leopoldo. She's also really happy to be a friend to Carmilla. And even when it becomes clear that Carmilla has this obsession with Leopoldo and once like, there's a certain point in the movie where it's almost like a switch flips and everyone stops being polite about Carmilla loving Leopoldo and just starts going like, yeah, man, like she loves you. How do you not realize that? Like, it's obvious to everyone. It doesn't bother Georgia. She even has a line of dialogue at one point where she says like, you know, if you talk to me, I can maybe help you. Well, and like that once she found out Carmilla loved Leopoldo, she liked Carmilla more. Mm -hmm. And like Georgia seems to really like Carmilla. um, And that's really interesting. And it makes Georgia a more interesting character than if she had just been like, oh, ha ha ha. You know, I'm the the victim. Um, (laughs) That's a whole victim sound. Um, I I see where you're going. And like, I do agree that these are interesting characters. But overall, I found the acting too tame and almost lifeless. Uh, because I mean, part of it is, I don't know if it's just the pacing. It just Mm. felt like nothing happened. And because one of the critiques that you mentioned was that Strasberg was like too over the top or something, I was expecting there to be more melodrama. Yeah. Histrionics. And there was nothing. Yeah. Even from Strasberg, like did people just misinterpret the bipolarness as overacting? Because... I can, I guess I can see that kind of interpretation, even though I disagree with that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, it's why, like, at the top, I said, like, if you're expecting, like, an erotic horror lesbian Carmilla adaptation, like, you're just not going to get it, right? Yeah. Um, the pacing is a major weakness here. And the tone, I think what we're seeing here is a big disconnect between the movie that Roger Vadim is making mm. and the movie that in some ways that the movie, the movie that was marketed and in some ways the movie that people like expected and that like he should have delivered. I think this movie is very good at doing what it wants to be doing. The problem is, is I don't think it's very interested in doing what it should be doing. Does that make sense? It does because there's no tension or atmosphere. There's no attempts to make to make this a horror movie in my honest opinion it's more of a 
dark fantasy or gothic fantasy than horror. Um, I think he, he is in the director was very interested in the idea of what if Carmilla, but not Mm. like, uh, in the sense of like, what if it wasn't supernatural? I don't remember the timeline of if the dual personality thing could potentially be influenced by psycho, but there was enough going on in other media that we kind of touched on in psycho. Yeah. There's, there's something in the water in 1960. That's yeah. It's lead. (laughs) Um, that like, it's not that this is a ripping off psycho. Like there's just something in the air. And, uh, I think that's what he's interested in. The other thing that really frustrated me about this movie is because the music, because the setting, to an extent, even the costumes, like, felt like this could just be Camilla. I felt so frustrated that they were just doing other things. I was like, just give me fucking Carmilla. Yeah, it's it's really <laughs> just like, it's the character names, right? Carmilla, Mercala, uh, Malarca, the Karnsteins is the family from the, the story and stuff. The idea that, like, Carmilla is Malarca and that, like, there's this old painting of Malarca and, oh, she looks the same, like... And that there's like some, a little bit of lesbianism going on here. Like these are the only things that are in common. Otherwise it's a totally new story. I do want to disagree with you. I think this movie is very atmospheric, but it's less the atmosphere of like Gothic horror, Black Sunday atmospheric and more the atmosphere of like Jean Cocteau, Beauty and the Beast, like dreamy Uh, kind of dream world, um, atmospheric i also do think you said like it it fails at being a horror movie it doesn't have anything horrific i think this movie does manage to achieve some good haunting imagery um typically occurring when carmilla's kind of having her like i'm gonna call them psychotic episodes as malarca and she's like wandering through things i think that the scene where she tracks down lisa is actually pretty well done the problem is the pacing Mm -hmm. that these moments are way too spread out like i think the the thing of like um so we haven't explicitly said this but like where she's seeing the um blood on her chest in the reflections like she gets to like this standing mirror and she like rips her bodice open and we see like this this blood-stained breast uh hanging there and then she like collapses to the ground and the mirror shatters and stuff like these are all cool moments they're just separated by too much not anything else going on or, or characters just kind of talking about things. And I have a little bit of a theory about it, but I do want to point out another thing that I did think was cool, that I thought was interesting, that I thought was a good idea, even if maybe the movie doesn't um, use it to its full extent. I think the idea of like looking at a European noble family that exists in the 20th century you know, long after nobility is not really like mm-hmm. a big deal anymore. Yeah, because this is a contemporary yes, set movie. If, yes. Because it opens with an airplane. So it's very explicit that this is a contemporary yes, movie. Yes, this is a contemporary set movie. But the backstory of the Karnsteins and like the villagers killing all the vampires and stuff, as you mentioned, like is 1775 and all these things. I think the idea of like these wealthy people, Leopoldo, Carmilla, who are like the last remnants of this old noble family and stuff who have to live with 
the fact that all of their ancestors either like were vampires or were at least regarded to be vampires by the villagers and that the villagers who live near them like are still very suspicious and superstitious about it. That's like a really interesting idea to me. The idea that like they're at this party and it just sort of gets mentioned in passing. Oh, all the Karnsteins are vampires. And like one of the people who doesn't know the family that well is like, wait, what the fuck are you talking about? And they're like, oh yeah, but not after 1775. Like, as if you were explaining how like, oh yeah, my family used to own slaves, but not after 1865, right? Like this very kind of, um, like they're very like nonchalant about it. It's like, oh, and like, you know, Leopoldo and Carmilla know all the lore because like, yeah, this would be a thing that would be passed down in the family. Um, it's this really interesting idea that sort of suggests like, you know, if you are wealthy and let's say like, you just inherited your wealth and like you're otherwise a good person. You grew up in a big mansiony house. You're used to being rich, but like you personally didn't own slaves or sell drugs or, you know, do anything awful to be rich, which you have to do awful things to get rich, but you could be born rich and not have done anything awful and to like have to kind of reconcile with that, you know, and that's something we kind of saw in fall of the house of Usher, for yeah. instance, and it was done much better there. Yes. Um, but it was still an interesting idea to me. The interesting idea of like to do a vampire movie set in the 20th century where you have people who are like, oh yeah, like they thought my ancestors were vampires. It's super weird. And then to have like, oh, you know, your ancestors were or something like that is an interesting idea. Um, to speak of, speaking of Fall of the House of Usher, to, to sort of tangent for a moment, I just want to say like the moment the dream sequence started happening, I was like, Oh, I see. Usher did a dream sequence and now everybody's got to have a dream sequence. It's the hot new trend. This dream sequence has no style. I was very disappointed in it. It has neat visual effects with like blood, maybe twice. Yeah, it does. A, it does like kind of the Sin City thing where like it's in black and white, but the appearance of blood is still red. And it did remind me uh Tingler. Yes. Yeah, the Tingler when... Um, yeah, so I was wondering if maybe they did that a couple times to kind of like get some of the shots. Yeah, I think uh, so. What I'm specifically speaking about, in case you haven't listened to that episode, is um, they had a scene that was meant to like scare someone. They filmed it in color, but decorated everything as if it was black and white, except for when blood would appear. So the blood looks vibrant, super, super red, um, and it's such a cool moment in the tingler um i wonder if they did moments like that or at least think, filming moments like that in here i think the moment where it's the blood on all of the um gloves gloves in the operating room is like that i think that was probably shot with like everyone done up in black and white clothes and makeup and the gloves just being normal i think the moment where like carmilla like rips open her breast and like blood starts pouring out i think that was an effect i think that was like an optical yeah. effect um i will say about that dream sequence like it does a good job of like being a dream sequence in the sense of like it, it's clearly like a lot of um random mind association stuff like it, it feels like a dream that you'll actually you might actually have where it's like and now suddenly i'm going down the hallway of my old girls school and that leads into a room with like an operating table and whatever but the problem is is like that's not <laughs> dramatically interesting it doesn't tell us anything about georgia it doesn't add yeah. to the themes of the film in any way and because you brought up house of usher and that mm. dream sequence like that sequence was so stylish and evocative mm -hmm. and scary and nightmarish whereas this was just like 
okay, interesting. Let's read what uh, what dreams mean from the public library. Yeah. Read this book to see, like, how can I interpret this? It Yeah, it didn't have any of the power. I think that's why it felt like someone going like, oh, they had a cool dream sequence in Usher. We should do one, right? Yeah. Um, the other interesting idea that I thought was cool here that they did a really neat thing with is once... Malarca is possessing Carmilla, whether supernaturally or psychotically. Um, Carmilla starts like sort of having these moments that suggest she's a person at a time. Yeah. Uh, those were really neat. Like they're around the dinner table and someone's like, well, you know, when this prince died in 1769 and she's like, no, it was 1759. And he's like, no, I'm pretty sure it was 69. And she's like, no, it was 59 because it was the year the cholera happened. Don't you remember? Or there's this other moment where like everyone's like, hey, let's put on a record and dance. It's the 60s. And Carmilla puts on like some like, you know, harpsichord music from the like 1600s or whatever and starts like sh- like dancing like, like medieval she's in, style. Yeah, like she's in a. Yeah, exactly. And then showing everyone else how to dance that way. Moments like that were really neat and they were really cool. And they helped like keep the audience guessing. Right. Is this supernatural or not? Ben. What parts were supposed to be erotic? Okay. Why does this have the reputation of being an erotic horror? Because the only thing I can think of are censors going like, oh, this leans towards a queer theme. Queer equals erotic. So I think that's part of it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think part of it is the idea that like in 1960 and really honestly, like up until extremely recently i'll say lesbian content particularly uh has generally been interpreted as titillating to a male audience right so there's this certain thing of like um like i brought up tattoo earlier and like if you're not familiar uh because maybe you're you're too young or something or too old um (laughs) god like around too young we're so ancient around the like turn of the millennium there was this russian pop duo that was two girls and they got this huge controversy because uh they had this video where they were dressed in like schoolgirl outfits like white shirts pleated skirts and they're out in the rain and they're making out in the rain and their shirts are wet and their hair is wet because of the rain and they're kissing and um the song itself is actually like really repetitive and not very good at least in my opinion sorry if you're a big tattoo fan but the thing was their record company and their promotional machine basically emphasized this in a way of like maybe they're gay and they weren't like tattoo weren't a lesbian couple they weren't gay they weren't girlfriends they were in their minds like playing characters in that video who were lesbians and the video was about the fact that like they're ostracized by the other students or whatever um but the way the video is shot is very like you should be getting turned on by watching these wet teen girls make out and Mm. all of the marketing around it was very like oh maybe they're lesbians and that's sort of how i felt about the way that this movie is quote-unquote erotic is it's like oh maybe they're gonna kiss Ooh! so that, that that brings me firmly into like the stuff i didn't like about this movie we've already talked about the fact that hardly anything happens we've already talked about the fact that it's over halfway into the movie when the first death occurs and that like carmilla finally getting around at attacking georgia is basically the last thing that happens in the movie yeah um but yes i think 
okay, so with the eroticism and with the horror, like, granted, this is a movie from 1960. So, like, as a lesbian vampire movie, like, I, I could understand someone being like, well, what did you expect? Like, it can't get that explicit. It's 1960. But, like... No, Glenn or Glenda had more yeah. erotic quote-unquote imagery than yeah, this movie that's one of the things about doing this show the way we are doing it is like if you kind of showed me this movie apropos of nothing i could maybe have an interpretation where i'm like wow yeah this is really like pushing boundaries for 1960 but because i've seen all these other movies in 1960 like even the way this movie teases erotic content seems chaste yeah and it's also <laughs> not to paint with a very broad brush but it's european you i expected, expected more, more. <laughs> right yeah when you're told like european lesbian vampire movie like yeah absolutely i mean obviously like carmilla gets her bloody tit out at one point but like for a second the big moment in this movie and we already talked about it it's the one that's on the poster right is carmilla and georgia soaked by the rain and they kiss but it's such a letdown after all this buildup because like it's the most like we're kissing without really kissing kind of kiss like you know it reminded me of that moment in i think it's mulholland drive where um the two ladies couldn't kiss but they're like side by side in bed and one of them is like facing the camera and the other one is like looking straight up towards the ceiling Mm -hmm. so like the shot makes it look like they're kissing but they actually aren't um but that's what the, the like it's, framing it, of the faces was similar. It's a weird half kiss where like Carmilla is kissing Georgia on the lips. It's not like an open mouth kiss, but Georgia is facing away from Carmilla. So it's just kissing like half of her lips because yeah. that's all she can get from that angle. And it has this feeling of like, we wanted to have like a lesbian kiss because ooh, lesbian kiss. But you know no one on the set wanted to do it and like everyone was kind of weirded out by it and felt uncomfortable with it. So we kind of just like half-assed it. Like that's the vibe that I get from it. The thing is you talked about this being like dark fantasy, right? Which I, I totally buy. And I even talked about Cocteau and stuff. Um, blood and roses, good title for the movie and die of pleasure. Bad Bad title title for the movie. That makes it sound like, you know, this woman vampire is going to be like munching on this other lady (laughs) and the other lady is going to be like super into it and like rapturous like she's um, Lucy in Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula (laughs) and like, you know, writhing around and then she's going to like orgasm and die like that's. Yeah, well, what made me also think like with the blood and roses and die of pleasure is there's a lot of literature and particularly like victorian literature that talks about orgasm as the little death yes um that in fact the word in french for orgasm is the little death yeah and this is a french movie so but there's like, no there's no fucking orgasms in yeah, this movie there's no o's ever anywhere in this movie so the tone of this movie to me the the pacing the way that everything's talked about the the tone um all the stuff that you said like didn't make it horror the story, the music, the way the acting is done, where you thought like the acting's not big enough for horror yeah. and stuff. To me, the genre that this movie feels like is romantic tragedy. Sure. Like this is a story about someone who is obsessed with someone that they're in love with, that they can never be with, and that ultimately drives them to a tragic ending. 
it could be really effective if it was framed that way mm-hmm. as a as a you know romantic tragedy for the ages but it's not framed that way it's framed as an erotic horror movie and it doesn't work on like those standards yeah i uh i don't know if we're ready to move on to the quote-unquote ranking of this because we are both in agreement that it's not horror but when i was looking at well if it is horror where would it go Mm -hmm. i started at directly in the middle of the list which is 143 mm-hmm. and I kept looking down and ultimately I felt like wolf blood was a good comparison because it's not what you expect going in. It's not what you want. Yeah. So I do want to mention a couple other things. Yeah, totally, totally. But um, yeah, I, I get how you feel. I had another like really hard time with ranking because I, I did the same thing you did. I, I picked out a range in case we went and decided this was horror. The feeling I got watching this, you know, to address your, what we've been talking about, about like, it feels like the director didn't want to make the movie that the movie wanted to be, you know, kind of thing. The feeling I get watching this picture is that it was the result of people not familiar with the horror genre in film, wanting to do a kind of like vampire ghost story and ending up with something that feels very tame, even by the standards of 1960, because on the one hand, the movie really wants to be like a real actual dramatic movie with like character arcs and character development and psychological complexity and, Mm -hmm. and examining all these people's lives from every angle. And it's so into doing that, that it forgets to be horror. The other side of it, you know, the reason why I say it feels like they're not familiar with the genre is because these moments like, okay, Lisa's death, right? Shot on Lisa. She looks scared. Shot on Carmilla, she slowly approaches camera, cut to black. You know, very old fashioned, like 1931 Dracula. And it's the same thing with like the erotic elements. Like, what's happening here is it, I feel like this is a movie telling me, like, ooh, look how spooky we are. Look how scary we are. Look how like boundary pushing we are. And you're sitting there like, no, you just haven't watched any horror movies, so you don't know that this is tame as fuck, right? Like, it's like horror movies for people who, you know, come to Roger Vadim's other movies, which are like sure. French romantic art movies. And so it's like for that crowd, like it feels like, you know, it's a horror movie designed for the people who came and saw and God created woman. And are still like following Vadim's career, uh, you know, and, and saw like dangerous liaisons uh, that he did and stuff like that. And it's like, ooh, this is like the horror stuff here yeah. is like a spice, right? Yeah, Not like the soup. This movie definitely feels like it fits right in with Vadim's other work that you outlined, hmm. because as you said, like it's more of that romance. It, which I even struggle with though, because I would want more melodrama right for a full romance movie yeah. yeah i don't know it's telling a story about people who in my opinion i think the movie actually has a really good read on the psychology of these characters i really like the emphasis on like the character relationships i think this is a great movie about psychosexual obsession and i really responded well to the movie's depiction of carmilla's mental health struggle but like it's not a horror like it's not it's not a very good horror movie because yeah it needed to (laughs) the thing about horror is like fears aren't rational right so realistic 
mental health struggles, you know, are harrowing. But the thing that makes them scary is when you have a fear of like, well, what could I become? Right. What could maybe I do because of this problem that I have with me? And the movie tries to go in that direction with like, well, you could think that you're an ancient vampire and start going around killing people, you know, (laughs) but like you aren't going to have the emotional response to it that you should in a horror movie because it's all played so low key here. And like what you kind of need to do is like push all the emotions into that histrionic place um, where, you know, maybe that's not like a responsible Uh, depiction of mental health because like maybe it's a little melodramatic and over the top but if you want to like evoke people's fear of what's inside them you need to basically like characterize it a bit yeah right what is externalize it externalize it yeah exactly like you have to take the monster that's inside people and make it outside of them uh and like alien Maybe not like that, literally. But um, (laughs) what is interesting here is that what little lesbian undertones there are in this movie seem to be flowing in the opposite direction as we would expect. Like in the novella. um, Well, Sarah, do you want to tell me about how gay the novella is? Novella is very gay. Um, Laura is more of the like... unwitting person who's being crushed on yes who's like man i wish someone would ask me out on a date what are you asking yeah like just not really picking up any well, signals at all this and is carmilla's like carmilla does have the like <laughs> bipolarness like the um love me hate me like hot cold mm-hmm. but when she's hot she's like oh, Laura, let's like hold hands and like tell each other's secrets as like I put my head on your breast and like listen to your heart. In this movie, Carmilla's like whole story hinges on her heterosexuality, right? Like her whole thing here is how she wants to fuck her cousin. And it's Georgia who comes across through Elsa Martinelli's performance as attracted to Carmilla, right? Yeah, like it frankly seems like Leopoldo could have avoided this whole tragedy by just inviting the two women to a threesome. Well, here's the thing, Ben. They're cousins. (laughs) Right, right, right. When I say avoid the tragedy, I mean the murders and the deaths. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, I guess the family relationship keeps it gothic, I guess. I will say that, yes, they're cousins. Okay, I'm not... I'm not like trying to be like a cousin love apologist here, but like it's explicitly stated that like Leopoldo's from the Italian branch of the family and that Carmilla's from the like Austrian branch of the family. Yeah, they're like fourth or fifth cousins. Yeah, they're they're like pretty far. But they apart. also grew up together, Benjamin. Yes, that's also true. But I, I'm just saying, polyamory could have solved this problem. Well, slotted under that growing list of Movies that could have been solved by polyamory. (laughs) Yes. Um, I think that this could have been a great movie. Like, looking at all the filmmaking talent on display here, this could have been a great movie if Carmilla's attack on Georgia had been the midpoint of the movie, and then there had been more horror story after that, and then the, like explosion fall on the stake checkoffs munitions dump thing was you know still the ending but you had like a third act in there somewhere yeah but yeah i i i think 
this is either dark fantasy or romantic tragedy, not horror. So we're not ranking. Yeah. Yeah. It's still like kind of a vampire movie, but you can have vampire movies that aren't horror. Yeah. Uh, Interview with a Vampire. Right. Which is a, also a romantic tragedy. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And a biopic. Just, and you a know, of, of, a, of a fictional person, but like otherwise structured like a biopic. Yeah. To be clear, we're talking about the movie, not the TV show. The yes. TV show looks fucking amazing, but have not seen it. Mm. Um, anyways, so a Maria de Plaisir will enter onto our miscellaneous, not horror list, uh, which you can find on our website, screamscenepodcast.com. If you would like to check out the other episodes that we have mentioned today, you can find those on that list as well. And if you would like to contest the non-ranking of and die of pleasure slash blood and roses you can reach us through our ask box on tumblr or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com scream scene updates every wednesday on apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud and spotify you can subscribe to the show using our rss feed we also really appreciate it when you leave ratings or reviews on the podcasting apps that you use because they help push the show to new listeners um, if you want to kind of do that work yourself, though, we also really appreciate that. You can tell people about the show uh, through word of mouth, through social media. It's all appreciated. And we especially appreciate those of you who can support the show financially by heading on over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. And even at that level, you would be able to access the Carmilla audiobook. Or the five-hour actual play episode of it's six hours, Ben. Okay, it's like, yeah, because it's like five hours and 59 minutes, basically. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> the six-hour actual play episode of Dread, uh, which I, uh, I'm i really proud of. Sarah did an amazing job. Uh, it's really cool. So, yeah, if you want to get all the cool Patreon stuff, $1 gets you in. $5 a month gets you regular bonus audio. $10 a month gets you access to all kinds of writing. Um, it's really cool. So head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Uh, well, Ben, the hits of the 60s had to be interrupted <laughs> at some point, but what are we watching next week? Well, next week, Sarah, it's another hit, but it's not horror. Uh, it's a movie I know isn't going on the list. When oh. we stopped doing our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episodes, uh, I mentioned at the time that like I was going to try and work horror-adjacent stuff just kind of into the regular schedule every now and again. Um, so next week's movie is a horror comedy with like, emphasis on the comedy enough that it wouldn't rank but it's an important movie that we should be watching and talking about because it is the original version of roger corman's little shop of horrors Ooh, i've always wanted to see this it's because i really like the one with steve martin yes and um, rick moranis more importantly <laughs> the production level between those two movies is sort of like the difference between the height of a stone and the height of a skyscraper it's very miles apart like well yeah it's, it's it makes gonna sense. be one's it, a musical and one's a one's a, like a big hollywood musical with like big name stars in it and the other was made by roger corman in literally a weekend yeah so we're gonna talk more about that next week i hope you will join us till then creatures of the night bye bye, bye.